When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, our mission to serve and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. In the pandemic, many of us have been forced into working from home. Now that offices are starting to reopen, you want to go back in person? I have some interesting info to share with you on that. And later, I have a very stark warning for you about real estate. Scary things happening you haven't seen since right before the real estate bust and the Great Recession. So we have been having ongoing conversations, and we did a poll of our employees that work on Clark.com, ClarkDeals.com, our newsletters, our social media, blah, 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 um, who have been working from home since early March of 20. And so we've been trying to decide after we let our office space lease terminate, expire, if we're going to get space again, what kind of space, or we're going to continue in our equivalent of a virtual office where we use Google Meets and Zoom and have all our meetings with um, with the virtual face-to-face instead of in person. And our employees, when they were surveyed, are really split. Some would like to come back in all the time. Others would like to come back in part-time. And others are like, are you kidding me? I never want to have to commute to work again. So this is something going on with companies all across America is what to do with office workers who have had, it's been a real privilege, the ability to work from home over the last year plus. So people have uh, adapted and love the lack of commute. So there was a survey done recently that I read about in bizjournals.com It was done of 3,000 employees, and they were asked if they would rather permanently work from home or get a big raise. So the raise was giant. If they came back to the office, and this is all theoretical because employers aren't doing this, but they were offered a $30,000 raise to come back in the office full-time or to be able to continue working from home without the raise. Two-thirds of workers, two-thirds, said they'd rather work from home than have extra money. And so this is really, really something. It's one of those things you can't unsee what people have been able to do over the last year plus. And so employers suddenly you're like, hey, 
you know, the Biden administration rules have changed. We want people back in the office. So we didn't know when we were going to do that, but now we're coming back in on June 15th or whatever it is. And you're expected to be back. The reality is for worker retention, employers are going to have to be more flexible than that. And they're going to have to, in a time where we're going to face labor shortages for years to come with an aging population in the United States, employers are going to have to be the ones that flex and offer hybrid working methods, a variety of hot desks, if you know what that means, where it's kind of like you, uh, you book a desk on days you're coming in. Nobody has their own dedicated thing. They may have a file cabinet they can lock with their stuff. But we are in a new era. And just think it's going to be a new form of architecture. What do you do with these unloved, unneeded office buildings all over the country? Because it's going to be a long, long, long time until we need to absorb all that space. One thing for us as a small company, looking at space, the flexibility available if you do And we likely are going to rent some amount of space. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like, how much we're going to rent. But the opportunities available to us subletting space from people who have long-term leases and they, they are not going to reoccupy a lot of their space or any of it in some facilities, the ability for you to sublet space at great deals is incredible. So... Be careful pushing your employees to do what they don't want to do anymore because the next thing you may do is you may push them right out the door. All right, Clark, let's get to some questions. Edward in Massachusetts says, My wife and I are planning to purchase our first home soon, probably in the next six to nine months. We still have a moderate balance remaining on our student loans, which we have enough cash to pay off, but we're in a situation of having to decide whether to do that or use the cash to make a larger down payment on a home. Is the comparative APR between the student loans and mortgage loan the only thing to look at, or are there additional factors that we should take into account? Past that 20% down payment threshold to avoid paying mortgage insurance, does it really matter how much you put down in a home? Well, Edward, I love where your head's at, because it means that you and your wife have done an incredible job saving money that you're in a position, you have enough cash on hand that you're asking me, well, I've got well past 20% for down payment on a house. What should I do with the rest? So in your case, yeah. If you are at the 20% and you leave a little margin of cushion there, I would say you go ahead and take the rest of your cash and put it towards paying down balance on your student loans. Because the money you have in savings is earning a fraction of 1%. The student loans are going to be costing you more than that. And if you have student loans at a variety of interest rates, obviously you take the surplus beyond that targeted 20% down payment money, and you put it towards the highest interest rate student loan debt. And that will be kind of like having a little bit of both. I don't want you to reduce your cash to the point 
that you end up with private mortgage insurance. At the same time, I don't want you unnecessarily carrying student loans when you have the ability to accomplish quite a bit right now towards the student loans and still be in a good position on down payment on the home. And David in Michigan says, I happened across a request a credit limit increased option on my credit card account. On a whim, I asked for an increase and updated my income. And just like that, they increased my limit by almost $10,000. I expect a credit score increase to match. Ask not, have not. And don't worry, our credit scores are zeroed across the board every month. Our credit cards. Yes. Yeah. What did I say? You said credit scores. Oh, credit cards. Zero credit score would be good. (laughs) (laughs) So, David, this is something I recommend to people who are net payers of their credit cards, people who pay the balance in full every month. There's a massive advantage in, over time, getting your credit limits raised. And this is something that I do routinely where I will contact a credit card company. Now I just sign into my account and I request a credit limit increase. And they'll ask how much I want. And I always ask for basically the national debt of the United States. (laughs) And then they come back and say, well, we denied your uh, credit limit increase request, but we have increased your limit to blah, blah, blah. And I do this every year. I've driven my credit card utilization ratio down to 3% by doing so. And my credit score on the FICO scale is generally in the 830s now. So steadily raising your available credit is a huge benefit if you are somebody who pays balances in full. It is a real hazard if you're somebody who runs balances because the psychology with people who run balances is the higher your limit, the more you charge of a bill you can't pay when that bill comes in each month. But if you are somebody who's trying to get the absolute best credit standing, it's perfect to do what you've done, David. And this is from LaShawn. She says, my husband is an out-of-state college student. We have enrolled him in one three-unit course this summer at a state school where he qualifies for in-state tuition. The actual tuition cost is $557. However, the total amount we were required to pay was $1,400 for the one course, There were several excessive and unnecessary fees included in the cost, activity fees, athletic fees, wellness fees, rec center fees, health fees, etc. There was even a parking fee that doesn't cover parking. Can you investigate the legality of this? So it's a state university, and what's happened in a lot of states is they will raise the headline tuition rates by very small percents or even say we're freezing them for this year or whatever, and then they fee you to death. If your son was taking a full load at summer school, the ridiculous add-on fees would not have the impact they have when he's taking one course. So um, state universities, you should know, have a big profit incentive around summer students. It is very common that a student who's going to school somewhere else will be a transient student in the summer at a state college or university, and they know a lot of these kids are going to very high tuition school schools the rest of the year, and so they kind of take advantage of those transient students. Your son may find that a different level state college 
like a, a state community college, if they offer the course that your son needs, will not charge all those crazy fees because uh, community colleges put a big emphasis on having an affordable total cost where state colleges and universities don't. I want to tell you, we receive hundreds of questions every week now about real estate. And if you're not buying for the right reason, you very well could get burned with the psychology in the marketplace right now. I have a stark warning for you straight ahead. Over the last 40 years, I've paid close attention to investor psychology and different segments that we consider investments. Obviously, stocks, bonds, real estate are the three principal categories that most of us think about. And there are warning signs over real estate that I think are significant. A new survey by Gallup found that 71%, roughly three-quarters of Americans, expect significant increases in the value of homes. Now, compare this to a year ago when somewhere just a little more than a third of people expected that. There's a thing called inertia bias. Whatever's been happening most recently is what we then decide is happening going forward. Same thing will happen with the stock market, where if the stock market's been having a big run-up, people then automatically think that's happening forward. I remember back, way back in 1999, I had a lot of people really angry at me when at that time there was a mania about tech stocks, dot-coms, that later were known as the dot-bombs. Think... Uh, Pets.com, Webvan, a number of others that rose in value beyond the stratosphere and then came crashing back to extinction, many of them. Uh, Surprisingly enough, one of the hottest companies in the world today, one of the most successful companies in the world today, Amazon, went through a near-death experience in the dot-bomb era. Well, I remember in 1999, there was a survey, and I don't remember who did it, where people said that over the next decade, that they expected that that stocks were going to rise by at least 20% a year on average, year after year for the next 10 years, from 1999 forward. And what happened next? Well, it was ugly because we had a major, major market correction, a bear market, a crash, if you will, in tech stocks that took forever, a long, long, long time to heal itself. Now, I don't in any way, oh, and by the way, if you go to 2006, Americans thought that same kind of stuff about real estate. And I don't know if you've ever heard me tell this story, but 2004, I made a decision to stock up on cash because we were in such a fever pitch speculation on real estate that I believed, and maybe I was just lucky in this, but I believed 
that we were going to end up with a real estate bubble followed by a crash. And that's what happened. And so during the crash, I bought a very large number of real estate properties that I've now sold off two-thirds of what I bought. And so I'm not a market timer, but I do follow sentiment. And right now, people don't love the stock market overwhelmingly. They're skeptical, and the stock market is potentially meaningfully overvalued. And I don't believe, as I've shared with you in the past, that real estate is set up for a crash. But I do believe that there is misplaced optimism in investors at the returns that real estate is going to generate. I'm a real believer in an economic theory called reversion to mean, which means that if something goes up at an extraordinary rate, moving forward, it will eventually correct to its more normal values over time. And so we don't have conditions with the easy money feeding a speculative fervor with no qualification necessary for zero down mortgages and all that that led to the banking scandals and the housing crash that started in 07. We don't have any of those conditions. But believing that moving forward, real estate is going to continue increasing at anything like it has lately, not realistic. And it's very difficult to buy investment real estate right now and be able to make the fundamentals work in terms of making money because the effective rents you can charge are not sufficient to reward you for the amount of money you have to put in to buy a rental property. So this is a time to tread carefully in the real estate market. Buying a home you're going to live in, that's a different issue, and that's something I addressed not too long ago about the expected ownership cycle should be significantly longer than historical. Not seven years, it should be 10. The mortgage rates are very low. The longer you stay in a home, even if you have quote-unquote overpaid for it, the low mortgage interest rates will help smooth that out for you. But you need a long ownership cycle to make that work. Investment real estate right now, though, doesn't work. Well, speaking of doing it the right way, Timothy in Florida says, I began investing in rental properties around 35 years ago when I was in my 20s. Now I own several that are mortgage-free. I'm considering holding the mortgage for a tenant that wants to purchase the house he's in now. I'm open to this idea, but I'm wondering how can one enforce the, their responsibility to maintain homeowner's insurance once the house is in their name until the mortgage is paid off? So, Timothy, one thing I want to tell you, how fantastic that over pretty much your entire working lifetime, you have built a tremendous amount of wealth for yourself in the get-rich-slow method. Your tenants over the years have paid down these mortgages now to zero. You own these properties. It's a great time for you to turn them into just straight-out cash. And I love what you're talking about doing where you will finance for the buyer. So how do you align your interests? One, the more down payment this buyer 
pays, the more they're going to have an equal interest in you and making sure they don't put their equity at risk and will maintain their homeowner's insurance. But when you do a seller finance mortgage, you can set it up where the lender, uh, not the lender, the insurer notifies you that in fact the policy is in place or that it has lapsed. I have gotten those lapse letters before when I've owner financed. I've owner financed six times over the years and that's a piece of mail you don't want to see. But I've scrambled with the tenant to get that paid, the tenant, the buyer. And in one case, I actually lent the person I was financing money to get the premium paid on the homeowner's insurance once I got the notification. They said they just didn't have the money to pay it. So you need to stay on top of it, keep it on your calendar, know when renewal, each annual renewal for the homeowner's insurance would take place. And as long as you are managing that well, you're going to be okay because you'll get notice in time before the policy would lapse to be able to bring it, in fact, current if that became necessary. And a warning from Allen in Georgia. I recently closed on a home, luckily scoring that magnificent 2.5% rate. But ever since I've closed, I've been receiving solicitations from, for insurance from the mortgage company. They're disguised as paperwork for the loan, contain forms of insurance, and are printed with verbiage such as FINAL NOTICE in all caps. How is this not misleading advertising? Please let everyone know if they purchase a house, they are not required to purchase death, disability, chronic illness, or whatever whatever other garbage insurance, especially since I have insured myself for these issues already outside the loan. Pathetic. Alan, thank you for bringing this up. It shows the lack of ethics in the banking industry in the United States. These mortgage life and disability policies and the various flavors of them are a complete and total ripoff. The deal is you are paying a premium typically 10 times or more what real insurance costs. But the kicker is with these policies, the beneficiary is not you, it's the bank or mortgage company. So you're paying a premium at 10 times or more market prices to insure them, not you. And this is, as you said, garbage insurance. And the reality is, if you don't have disability insurance in your life, it's something you almost certainly need for your working lifetime. If you don't have life insurance to protect your loved ones, then you need to have a life insurance policy. But you don't want to buy any of this stuff through the bank because all they're going to do is sell you junk. And I want to thank you for joining us. For more advice, contact our Consumer Action Center where you can get one-on-one advice for free. You can find them at clark.com slash CAC.